Let me just say, as I'm uh, getting myself together here, uh, that I neglected to mention earlier uh, how thankful I am, and I'm sure I say on behalf of the Schneider family how thankful we are for, again, the outpouring of such graciousness and generosity to us <clears throat> in terms of our Christmas <clears throat> gift. We thank you again from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, you are a very loving, very generous, and a very supportive congregation and, and church family. We thank you very much for that. And many of you have, have extended us a number of greetings and gifts and things. We want to just acknowledge those and say uh, what a blessing they are. We thank you very much. Would you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Matthew 23? Matthew 23. And we're going to be reading and looking at, considering this morning, the first 12 verses of this chapter. We're going to return this morning to our study of Matthew's Gospel. We've had a little bit of a break here for Advent. And we ended our study a number of weeks ago, having considered the fact that Jesus was involved in a number of encounters with various Jewish leaders, several of them, who had represented various factions. And they had come to him one after the other, and they had posed questions to him hoping that somehow in his answer that he would have lost his popularity among the Jewish people, that he would have gotten into hot water somehow in what he said, or better yet for them, they were hoping that perhaps he would say something that would infuriate the Romans and that the Roman army would arrest him and uh, for insurrection and various things. They were hoping to get rid of him. And you'll notice the end of chapter 40, sorry, verse 46 of chapter 22 says, no one... Having had all these encounters with him, he gave such amazingly brilliant and insightful answers that no one was able to answer him a word. All of his critics were silenced. Nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. The significance to that is no more questions, no more trying to nail Jesus with anything. Now Jesus is going to speak. He's going to speak his final public sermon before he dies. And so we approach chapter 23 with that in mind. Let's look at these words together. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers." And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us as we approach this portion of your word to sense once again the seriousness of what our Lord and Master Jesus Christ was saying. 
These are sobering words. This is a sobering chapter. We pray that we help us to see that Christ, in His love, spoke words of encouragement, but in love He also spoke boldly words of warning. We pray that You'd help us to heed them, help us to learn from them, Help us, Lord, to gain insight into what the Spirit would have us learn from this text. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Here is Jesus with this large crowd gathered in the temple complex, a very large, massive open area. And in this context, Jesus is now going to admonish and warn, notice who it says there in verse 1, his followers and the multitudes. He is going to speak to those who have been intrigued with him, who have sort of out of curiosity have been following him for a while, as, those who, as well as those who are very earnest and sincere and who are devoted to him as his apostles and disciples. Notice how this differs from the section we're looking at, verses 1 to 12, is much different than verses 13 and following to the end of the chapter, where Jesus boldly condemns the spiritual religious leaders of the day. The corrupt ones whose who were in charge of this apostate form of, of worship there, this religious enterprise that was headquartered in the temple complex in Jerusalem. In this dramatic scene, Jesus now is revealing once again, and we need to see this clearly in the text, Jesus is being revealed as the one whose authority supersedes even those who claim they are the descendants of Moses and who are rightful ones who should be handling what Moses wrote in the laws of Moses in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, Despite all their claims, despite all their impressive looks and what they have claimed to do, Jesus is saying, my authority is greater than these. And in his final public sermon here, Jesus is reverting back to a number of familiar themes that he's already covered in his first public sermon found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, chapter 5 through 7. In this sermon, Jesus here now is going to reiterate what he's already said there in that sermon in chapter 23, when he warns about false prophets who present themselves and appear to be sheep in the flock of God. But the reality is they're actually dangerous. They're ravenous wolves. And they are there intent on destroying the sheep. And Jesus is now echoing also another earlier statement in which he's now going to speak to this issue of these false teachers, these false shepherds. And he's going to say that the true nature of a false prophet is always revealed by and made clear by their fruits. And so in this text, the fruits of these false teachers are going to be clearly explained and noted. And so the damning expose that Jesus has regarding their bad fruit is going to expose these religious leaders for indeed what they are, that is, phony, false leaders. Notice in this text now, in verses 1 to 12, we're going to find three directives into who deserves to be spiritually given honor and devotion. And the first point I want to notice here is that false spiritual leaders are not to be, either you want to say honored or not to be followed, whichever way you want to say it. But that's the first point. False spiritual leaders are not to be followed or honored. Now one of the natural effects or inevitable effects of a leader and the impact they have upon their followers is is they tend to be people of influence. A leader, by virtue of who they are, and by definition, is a person who makes and has influence on other people. And so here are these folks who are the spiritual leadership positions. They are often viewed as upright people, 
people who are serving as an example, supposedly. And since many people in Israel at that time not only looked at their leaders, but all they saw of them was the public persona. All they saw of them was when they saw them in the temple uh, complex. That's all they knew about them from a distance. They saw these people who were dressed a certain way, who had these particular positions, and who spoke in a certain way. And they tended to look up to them because of their long history, because of the positions they held, and they held, tended to held them in high esteem. But Jesus is warning his followers that that pattern should not be followed, particularly with this group of leaders. And he says that these false teachers and spiritual leaders are corrupt, and therefore he says that these false teachers may utter impressive, pious-sounding words, and they did. They might look impressive on the outside, and they did. And they might have, uh, enjoy widespread popularity and have various, have various positions of power that were given to them, that were unique to them and special to them, but they should refuse to submit themselves to their teaching. They should not follow them in any way. Why? Verse 3. Despite their claims, despite their positions that they may sit on some seat of Moses, claiming to be the ones who are the uh, authoritative interpreters or handlers of Moses' writings, notice that they themselves do not submit to the authority of Scripture. Now, if they had actually taught the truth, if they taught that which was in keeping with Moses' teachings, Jesus indicates it would have been appropriate to have followed them. But he says, in this situation, it is not. Why? Because they clearly are not following the teaching themselves. And Jesus knew that the phony religious leaders were deceiving their followers and promoting a false hope, proclaiming a false gospel, and they were portraying a false piety. Parenthesis. This is not just the emphasis of Jesus in warning people about false teachers and false prophets. If you look and want to know more about it, there are tremendous amounts of, of coverage in the New Testament uh, of, of chapters to it. Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude all deal with the warnings and serious concerns regarding false teachers. End of parenthesis. Now notice in this text here, we're back to Jesus now giving three reasons why his disciples and the multitude should not extend honor, nor should they follow the example or be devoted to these false, corrupt prophets who prated around in the temple complex. Here's reason number one. Reason number one is these false teachers lack authenticity. They lack authenticity. The latter part of verse 3 clearly teaches that. They say things, but they don't do them. Now, one essential for God-honoring leadership, according to Jesus, is this, integrity. Integrity. False teachers often give the outward impression that they are dedicated to keeping two of the greatest commandments, to love God, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbors, yourself. They may talk the talk, but despite their talk about giving generously to God or to other people, and despite the fact that they have uh, a desire to supposedly help those in need. They're all supposedly giving all these alms that they would do uh, on a regular basis. It's clear they had no problem living a self-indulgent lifestyle while taking advantage of the poor, the desperate, the lonely, and the vulnerable. That is a clear sign of a false teacher. And if, you don't, if you want further proof, I would encourage you to take a brief study of Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44, where Jesus introduces his similar uh, uh, statement he makes there, Mark uh, 
precedes his statements by saying, the Pharisees were devouring widows' houses. They were taking advantage of the weak, the poor. And what do we see on many of the evangelists and folks who are on television appealing to people to send them their money? They speak to those who are the poor, those who can't afford to send the gifts. They're appealing them, if you need money, send me your money, then you'll get blessed. They prey on people who are weak. They prey on people who are desperate. And you find that's oftentimes an indicator of someone who is indeed an, an inauthentic, a person who is merely saying one thing, but what their life is is totally different. Meanwhile, they travel around in, in, in private jets. Uh, they live in lifestyles of luxury that are unbelievably extravagant, far beyond the, the realm of understanding of the average person who would give them a dime. So false teachers are not worthy of honor and devotion. Why? Because by virtue of who they are, that is, they're a false prophet or false teacher, they lack integrity and uprightness. Second thing, false teachers should never be followed because they lack compassionate concern for others. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much a finger. What an indictment here. Rather than helping people by teaching liberating truth, rather than helping people to be set free from bondage, these false teachers, these false shepherds, set up impossible standards, and they enforce endless regulations on these people, saying you've got to keep this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule. Oh, you forgot that rule and that rule and that rule. And all they do is continually find endless lists of regulations. And they never, ever mention anything about grace, anything about finding full forgiveness, anything about God's mercy and emphasizing the things in which we obviously cast ourselves upon God who is merciful and who is gracious. Very rarely do they ever talk about the grace of full forgiveness. It's all about your duty, your duty, your duty. You must do this, you must do that. Most important issue to a false teacher is to follow their rules. And believe me, the Pharisees were great and experts at taking the law and they had added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra additional laws to the original Hebrew scriptures and they were the law, uh, I mean the, the rule-keeping experts. And what did they do? If you read through the Gospels, if you were a person who was hungry on the Sabbath, huh, too bad for you, I have no concern for your plight, keep the rules. If you're in need of healing on the Sabbath, uh, too bad for you, just follow the rules. And you can tell there's a lack of any compassion for people who are hurting and struggling, who are weighed down with all these rules. And even if you attempt to follow all these endless rules, they still refuse to give you complete assurance and to give you the hope of forgiveness. Those who follow false teachers, they never enjoy the blessings of the gospel, which promises what? It promises justification by faith and having peace with God. That's what the gospel promises. The gospel promises that those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for them. Those are the words of hope and encouragement in the scriptures. But because these false teachers would lay a heavy burden of endless rules that must be followed in order to attain, quote unquote, some sort of salvation, false teachers produce disciples and followers who lack hope, they lack joy, they lack love, they lack peace. It can be fair to say that false teachers beat their sheep. They, are, they harass them. They continually 
do not give them any kind of a break. They hold over them, over the heads of their followers, threats of excommunication. If they do not give them the money that they expect they should have, or if they don't conform to some sort of man-made standards that they have set in place. Again, I would just say to you, Google Scientology, and you'll read a lot of what goes on with the high-pressure techniques that these groups just exert upon people who come into their movements. It's a sad, sad commentary of how they really have no compassion on people who are coming in. It's really a means of gain for themselves. Third reason. Jesus warned his followers, warned the multitude, beware not to follow these folks, these false teachers, is because they lack proper motives. Jesus mentioned a number of times during his three years of public ministry that the religious leaders of the first century Judaism did what they did, not out of a love for God, not out of a love for other people, but because why? Because they loved themselves so much, they did everything to be seen of other people. They wanted to be noticed. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Did you notice that carefully? Think about that, what Jesus is saying. He says, the extent of their vanity and pride is so broad that everything they do, all their outward devotion is fraudulent. It's all about themselves being seen by other people to be a certain way. According to chapter 5 of Matthew, that means that even their prayers, even their giving of alms, that is, gifts to the poor, even their fasting, Even their clothes in this text, in chapter 23, their clothes that they wear and the accessories that they wear when they're out in public, it's all about putting on a front, putting on a show so people will notice them and think that they are some kind of godly or righteous or pious people. He goes on to talk about examples of what he meant where he talks about this phylacteries, which were these tiny little leather cases that they wear in the left arm. You wear it near your forehead. And in wearing those, you have copies of of the little tiny scrolls of Scripture, passages. You're supposed to uh, carry those with you. Well, they took the normal pattern was to carry them a certain size. They made theirs bigger. Bigger than everybody's. Why? To make a point. Look at me. I got big phylacteries. I'm carrying around big portions of the Word with me. Or they tended to extend the tassels of the end of their garments, which were true for all of uh, Jews of that day, were supposed to have tassels at the corners of their garment. They made bigger tassels to make a bigger statement about, look at the the extent of my devotion to God. I have even larger tassels based on a command from the book of Numbers. It's all about impressing other people with somehow their supposed piety. But these false shepherds are more concerned about securing the approval of other people, their fellow Jews, than they were securing the approval of God. And that's why Jesus had noted earlier in chapter 15, verse 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's all a big show. And they didn't desire to know God or commune with Him. And the underlying motive was to maintain this outward image. And why were they so intent on doing that? Why keep up the image and do it with such an emphasis that was so obvious with all of these making things bigger than they really need to be. Why? Because in so doing that, it would help them to hold on to and retain their position of power and prestige and control. That's what they really were worshiping. 
And false teachers will say and do anything they think will portray, portray them as, as to, to enable them to retain their authority and the devotion of their followers. Having said that, let's look at point number two. False spiritual leaders who strive for greatness by exalting themselves will be brought low. This is a sad but necessary point that Jesus is making because for the folks who were there in the first century, they could not imagine these people ever being thrown out of office, as it were. Who in the world is ever going to stand up to these people and somehow say they need to be replaced and they're a bunch of phonies? These false shepherds were being, uh, Jesus was urging his disciples to reject these false shepherds and false teachers because their life was all about pursuing greatness in the wrong way. They were pursuing greatness according to the world standards, which was what? Self-promotion. It's all about you. And so the false teachers in the temple loved what? The places of honor. They loved the, the places of honor at, at the social gatherings when they would have groups together at a meal. They wanted to be at the place right beside the host at the place of greatest honor there so that they could be recognized and somebody could affirm how important they were. They were more interested in having other people serve them than they were humbly offering to meet the needs of other people. And someday it was going to be said of them, as it was recorded in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. You're a people who are consumed with yourselves. You're not doing what you should be doing as true shepherds. It makes no sense for the follower of Jesus Christ to yearn for seats of honor. All of us are unworthy servants. All of us are fellow sinners who are saved by grace. Why are we going to try to elevate ourselves and to try to have some positions that say, I am much better than you are, and I deserve to be in this higher position of honor? True greatness, Jesus said, is to be found, chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, by helping others and serving those in need. Rather than insisting on being given the best of all privileges, which is exactly what these false shepherds were doing. It's very sad, again, how they weren't, content enough just to be in the positions of the highest honor. And by the way, that's why I choose not to sit up front uh, during the part of the service. If I can keep from doing that, I try not to put myself up here as if I'm up here and you're down there. And, uh, you know, we used to have these little benches back here. I used to hate to sit up there and look out at everybody uh, because I felt like that was an awkward kind of thing. So I finally started sitting down here. I like it better down there whenever I can. But notice these false teachers, they yearned for greatness, not only with the seats of honor, but they were encouraging their followers to address them a particular way with titles of honor. Have you ever noticed how false prophets take great delight in being called such titles as Reverend Sung Myung Moon? He liked people to call him the True Father, capital T, capital F. Or others like to be called the Right Reverend so-and-so-and-so-and-so and put all their titles on their name there. Or the Great One, Your Holiness, most Holy Father, Your Eminence, Reverend Father, or Supreme Teacher. Many of the false teachers love to have those kind of high accolades given to them because it inflates in some ways the ego of people who are trying to pull off this deceptive impression that they really are people of such great holiness when it really cannot be the case and they're seeking to take credit for things they cannot take credit for as if they're worthy of all supreme allegiance. And Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute. 
No one who is committed to God's truth should seek titles of such greatness. He just knocks them all down and says, whoa, wait a minute. You've lost sight of where true greatness is. True greatness is not here on this level. True greatness is up here in the realm of what God, who God is and his revealing of his greatness in the person of Jesus Christ and in God who is the Father and source of all things. All of us are mere humans. And no religious leader can be the source of truth nor the supreme guide and leader which apparently some of these people had claimed for themselves. Only Jesus deserves titles of greatness, of honor. He's, he is worthy to be addressed in the New Testament as what? The righteous one. There's only one righteous one. It's Jesus. Christ, the Lord, which means the master, the chief, the greatest one. Faithful and true is the title Jesus has. Firstborn of every creature. Appropriate titles for our, his followers include things like this. Slave of Christ. Servant of the Lord. Disciple of Jesus Christ, ambassador of Christ. Those are all appropriate things we can call, have people call us. That's fine. Greatness is to be found serving one another, not insisting that other people address our concerns by giving us titles of magnificence and honor. And Jesus went on to condemn and expose those who had sought this greatness in accordance with the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world. And you'll, you've got to know the rest of the story here. He brings words of condemnation. We'll learn, look at that in weeks ahead. But in 70 AD, if you fast forward, the people who had propped themselves up, positions of honor, titles of honor, impressive appearance, all those things, all the trappings, it was brought to a cataclysmic end in 70 AD. About 30 or 40 years later, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and it was destroyed. And all of the temple was dismantled. And all of those who had been in place of those positions and claiming that we are the ones seating on the, sitting on the seat of Moses were completely pushed aside. And there is no more. There are no more priests. There is no more Sanhedrin. There is no more of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that came to an end in 70 A.D. And the point here is that judgment will eventually come to those who promote themselves who exalt themselves by seeking greatness for themselves, eventually they'll be put in their place. That's an important principle as to why it makes no sense to follow people who make those kind of claims and who fulfill those kinds of characteristics. Stay with me for our third point here. As we continue down through the text here, and we come now to verse, verses uh, 11 and 12. As the only true exemplary spiritual leader, Jesus is worthy, Jesus is worthy of our honor and our full devotion. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was sinless. He did not preach one standard and then did he, he would live another standard. He was authentic. Jesus practiced what he preached. And he commanded love for other people. But then what did he do? He displayed the most impressive and amazing and greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen when he laid down his life for his enemies. The disciples who followed Jesus for three years would never have died for someone who would, who would have lacked integrity. They would have seen that he was a phony fraud. and They would have said, I'm not giving my life for him. I know he's, he was not true. He was not who he claimed to be. But he is worthy of our complete trust and devotion. 
And notice in this text that Jesus was not indifferent nor detached from his sheep, as false teachers are. He selflessly loved and served others. His public ministry was displayed an ongoing pattern of healing the sick, assisting the helpless, befriending the despised, assuring the fearful, feeding the hungry, raising the dead, and patiently teaching those who were slow to learn. As Jesus saw the vast multitudes gathering there, hearing his teaching, we read in the scriptures that he saw them, and how did he react to them? With deep compassion. He was moved deep within his heart in a concern for them and their well-being. And it says that he saw them and was moved with compassion. He viewed them as vulnerable sheep who were being harassed by the corrupt spiritual leaders of the day, of that time. And they were unable to defend themselves. They were in desperate need of spiritual help. And Jesus, my friend, is the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep, what we read earlier in John 10. And no one compelled him and no one forced Jesus to do this. He did it out of his love, out of his compassion, out of his heart of concern for those who had wandered astray. What a contrast with the warnings, with with the pattern of these false shepherds, these false teachers in Matthew 23. And when Jesus offers his warnings, he's saying them as as a seriously concerned shepherd for his sheep. He's trying to protect his sheep. He's trying to say, listen, don't be duped by them. Don't follow them in all of their little schemes and all of their false teaching. As the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus invites us to come to him and to come to him as one who will not burden us with an endless list of regulations and things that are going to have to fall upon our shoulders. We're going to have to earn all this merit and earn our forgiveness before Him. He says, Come to Me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He is gentle and humble in heart. His yoke is easy, He said. My burden is light. When you follow Me, you're going to walk yourselves into truth and find yourself to be the way I've designed you to be, to live in relationship with God through Me and what I've done for you. Blessed are those who follow Jesus Christ who follow His example, who follow His teaching, who follow Him as the true, great one who teaches us in the way way of truth. And blessed are those who heed His warnings about false teachers. If I were to say everything we want to say and summarize verses 1 to 12 in, in Matthew chapter 23, here's the way I would say it. Either we admit that Jesus is Lord, that is the great exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, and who is worthy and deserves our service and our worship and our full devotion, and that we're to honor Him in that way, or we are to dismiss Him and turn our back on Him and follow the way of the world and live for our own kingdom and pursue whatever helps us find and achieve greatness in the eyes of the world. Because it's either Jesus is the great one, or we ascend ourselves and we become the great one. That is the option. And Jesus gives us the way of life, the way of truth, the way to follow him is to reject those who are false leaders and follow him alone. Let's pray. Once again, our gracious Father, how we thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is not the shepherd who comes to harass the sheep, to steal away the sheep, 
to destroy the sheep and to damn the sheep. We thank you that he came to rescue his sheep. We thank you that he is the one who is extending words of life and taught words of life. We thank you that he and his life pattern is full of integrity and authenticity, that it makes absolute sense to follow him and to surrender to him and yield ourselves to him and be devoted to him and him alone. Lord, I pray that you would help us today as we gather around your table today, that we would open our eyes to see the glories of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, who laid down his life for us. Help us, Lord, to be filled with joy, filled with the peace that comes through Jesus Christ, filled with the amazing sense of your love for us, and that we might, Lord, purpose in our hearts not to be duped by Satan and those who are false teachers, that we might find our pattern of our life is that we will hear your voice and we be following you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.